we need to build bridges with other communities of color and those communities who have had similar experiences here in the United States and what that means to build bridges. What does it mean to build a bridge? Is it showing up at, at, a, at a rally to support Black Lives Matter or is it a policy issue? I think it's all of it. It's about speaking up in the corporate context for other colleagues who may be impacted, even if it doesn't impact you. It's about finding that sort of safety in numbers to get the results for somebody else, even if it's not to benefit you or your in-group. May is Asian American and Pacific Islander, AAPI, Heritage Month, which is dedicated to honoring the rich tapestry and cultures, histories, traditions, and contributions of AAPI individuals to our country and communities. In honor of this month, this episode, we'll be discussing some of the unique challenges faced by AAPI attorneys, the nuances and barriers to representation that individuals in AAPI Uh, face in the legal industry and the complicated work of AAPI and other minority leaders in law when personally and professionally navigating social injustice. We are thrilled to be joined today by our guests, Curtis Liu and Jean Lee. Curtis serves as the general counsel of FTI Consulting, an independent global business advisory firm with which I'm very familiar and, and a big fan. And he is a member of the firm's executive committee. He has over 25 years experience as a law firm partner and senior in-house positions in the communications, media, financial services, and digital industries. He also currently serves as the chair of the board of directors of the Asian Pacific American Legal Resource Center. Gene Lee is the president and CEO of the Minority Corporate Counsel Association, MCCA, the preeminent advisor on diversity, equity, and inclusion, to C-suites across corporate America. She leverages her years of experience as a clinical social worker, a litigator, an in-house counsel to champion systems level change and create greater opportunities for people of color in law. She is a past president of the Asian American Bar Association of New York and a longtime active member of Ascend, the leading association of AAPI executives. Curtis, Jean, We're so thrilled that you joined us today. Thank you for doing that. We look forward to this conversation and on to Brian. The AAPI community in the United States represents a vast array of cultures, traditions, and ethnicities, each with unique perspectives, contributions, and experiences. In big law, The AAPI community has made significant progress in recent decades towards increased representation. It has been the fastest growing minority group in the legal profession for the past three decades. In fact, AAPI enrollment in law school increased by 14.5% from 2017 to 2021. However, that progress remains largely isolated to the junior ranks of the profession and AAPI attorneys continue to face a persistent glass ceiling that hinders representation at the highest echelons of big law. A recent study by Yale Law School found that despite being the largest minority group at major law firms, Asian Americans experience the highest attrition and continue to have the lowest ratio of partners to associates. Only 4.3 of equity partners at major law firms in 2020 were Asian Americans, whereas 90% were white. 
The AAPI community continues to face distinct forms of discrimination, barriers, and both implicit and explicit bias in the legal profession, including microaggressions, xenophobia, pandemic-related racism, and a spike in Asian-related hate crimes in the years that have followed the pandemic. Today, we are delighted that we have Jean Lee and Curtis Liu with us to help us unpack these topics. So with that context setting the stage, let's get started. So lots to wade through, guys, and thanks, uh, audience, and uh, Gene and Curtis for being uh, patient while we set the stage. We're delighted uh, and appreciate both of you for being here to help us celebrate AAPI Heritage Month. We want to go through some of the achievements as you see them uh, surrounding the AAPI legal community. So I'll turn it over to you to just share with the audience a few of those. And then pause. Uh, Gene, I think we talked about this a little bit before. Um, and I think you said, despite this progress, which we all want to celebrate here, um, we still have to be mindful of the work uh, ahead. And so I wonder, after you've set the stage with the accomplishments, can you help us uh, think about uh, the context of that work still to come? Gene, uh, maybe we'll start with you and then ask Curtis to chime in. Sure. And, and again, thank you, uh, Jonathan and Brian, for having me uh, on today's um, podcast and to talk about some of the um, challenges as well as some of the achievements of the AAPI community. Uh, I, you know, in preparation for our discussion today, one of the things I thought about is what do I want to talk about if if we're thinking about Asian American progress in the legal profession? And the first thing that I notice um, and thinking more positively about the profession is the number of general counsels like Curtis in a publicly listed company and especially in the Fortune 500 um, large companies. Um, MCCA has tracked that data since 1999. And when we look at the data even before then, before we started tracking it, in 1996, there was one Asian American general counsel in Fortune 500. So 1996, if we do the math, 27 years ago. So if we think about that and then fast forward to 2022, which is when our last count of the Fortune 500 GCs are, I mean, you're talking about 35 currently in that role. So while that raw number out of 500, there are 35, doesn't seem like a lot. When you think in the context of what's happened in 26 years, one to 35, I mean, that's a huge increase. And if you are an investor, that's a great way to invest in something. Uh, so Focusing on the on the positive side, we've made tremendous progress in the legal profession. And then when you look at um, in the law firms, as you mentioned earlier, in kind of setting the stage, if you will, of, of the Asian American equity partners, while the conversion rate from associate to equity partner is relatively low, and in fact, is probably the lowest in terms of conversion rates for other underrepresented groups, um, 4% is, is notable. Um, and 20 years ago, you had almost less than, a, I think, 2%. I think it was like 1.2%. But when you put that into context of other communities, I'm constantly reminded of how much more we have to do, how much more uh, we need to really focus in order to make those improvements that we'd like to see in the future. And then when you put it in further context of representation of Asian American lawyers, whether it's in, you know, in the private sector or in the judiciary or academia, et cetera, we're certainly highly underrepresented in positions of leadership. So I wanted to just kind of 
put that out there as food for sort of thought, because representation ultimately matters. When, when students um, talk about whether or not they want to be a lawyer, a doctor or something else, it often is very important for people to see people who look like them. And we often hear about this in research and other studies, and the law is no different. So that is one of the reasons why in my role, I constantly focus and my heavy focus is on representation because we need to see more people achieve those goals to break those barriers. And some people call it the bamboo ceiling. Jane Hun, I believe, coined that term um, 20 some years ago, perhaps. Uh, but but that's one of the reasons why we're very interested in, in increasing representation at the highest levels and not necessarily in the early and mid, because those levels have gained so much traction. Uh, so lots of progress uh, when you reflect back even 20 some years ago, but much more to be done in the context of the, the profession in as a whole. So Jonathan, Brian, this is Curtis. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate the opportunity to, to talk about you know, this important topic. I'll follow Jean's comments in terms of the achievement from a personal perspective. Uh, so just to give you some raw numbers, when I when I started law school, which was almost 35 years ago now, you know, I, w- I was in a class of uh, about 500 people, and I would say at most there were 10 Asians uh, in my class. My daughter's actually going to law school next fall, and so I kind of snuck into her newly admitted orientation day. And I would say that in a room of about 300 people, solidly 20% were Asian. Wow. Um, when I was, uh, when I was a law firm partner and I, I made partner, I think about 20 years or so ago, you know, out of a firm of about 800 lawyers, I was only the third Asian partner, uh, at the time. And, uh, you know, as Gene said, and I'm sure you guys will note that, you know, that while the conversion rate is high, our representation in the top ranks of certainly big law firms has increased. I think the interesting thing is is what is that Asians have still not yet penetrated the absolute top levels of the profession. Uh, I think general counsels may be an exception, but if you look at the very top levels of the of the profession, which is not only law firm partners but law firm leaders, judges, and other high important positions um, uh, where lawyers are at, we haven't quite yet gotten there. And I know this is a topic that you're going to raise, raise, Brian, but I hope it's just a matter of time before we get there. But it also always, always raises the question about whether, you know, as Gene said, there is a bamboo ceiling uh, and there is something that's preventing uh, Asian Americans from reaching the absolute top level of the profession. So before I go to um, my next question, I just want to pick up, Curtis, on something you and Gene both said, which is this um, ceiling that exists. Um, we see that across the board, actually, with the diverse population, which is the entry level is improving, but the partnership and more senior ranks aren't reflecting that and what you call the conversion rate. And I'd be interested in getting your perspectives as to why you think that hasn't changed, number one. And picking up, Curtis, on your point about some of the statistics, are they being skewed, in your view, by firms that have foreign offices where the population in that particular office is primarily Asian. In other words, are you looking at it from the perspective of the American offices um, as well? Because I fear sometimes that those numbers are actually lower if you look at domestic statistics, meaning the U.S. statistics. Any thoughts on why the that ceiling has existed um, and has been tough to break through? We only focus on the United States. 
uh, on these stats. Uh, we have started doing the global survey and we are mindful of the numbers being skewed one way or the other because, you know, when you, when you focus outside the United States, it, it does look much better because you're including everybody. So why, why do I think, I think your question is, why do I think the conversion rate is low? Uh, the there are a couple of factors um, that I would focus on. One is the unconscious bias. There are tons of research now that that really highlight what the impact of unconscious bias is. But it's also the systemic racism and systems that are set up to allow certain groups to accelerate and to rise, and and others that do not. And, and there are two sort of things at play. And some people will talk about the lack of soft skills that Asian Americans or other underrepresented groups do not have. And that's why they're not advancing. I used to buy into that probably 10 years ago. I no longer believe that. And that is actually a very dangerous narrative for us to be pushing. And, and I myself was part of that narrative because I believe, you know, in self improvement and accountability, which is why when people used to say like Asian Americans need to really improve on the soft skills, I truly embrace that because I'm a person who believes in accountability for your success or your failures. But in retrospect, in, in having thought about, you know, not only as a social worker and my journey as a lawyer in all sectors, honestly, nonprofit is now sort of the last stop. And as a nonprofit leader, my position has really changed in the past decade. It is not just about, you know, fixing the people who do not have the soft skills, but really looking at what is the bias? Why is it that everybody who went to the same schools, got the same grades, got into the great schools, and then education and experience? Why is it some groups advance and others don't? And that really started my kind of journey into thinking about what are the systematic challenges um, that people face? And then, and then it, that's when I realized that, you know, one of the reasons why I was such a fan of the research that the ABA and the MCCA did um, six, seven years ago, my predecessor, by the way, I give Joe West full credit on that, um, had the forward thinking to be part of that um, bias interrupters research that we did um, that was released five years ago. And it really looked at what are the systematic barriers, what's the bias that prevents um, Asian Americans from advancing in our in our workplaces? And and then I won't go into all the research because you can read about it. But that's when I realized also that there are systematic bar- barriers for people to fail, and no one really realizes it except for those who, of us who are trying to navigate the system. And I simply use this example. When you say a company or a culture is diverse, inclusive, equitable, and then now everybody is adding this belonging piece, which is a separate conversation, what does that mean? Well, it means you really need to embrace the individual with all of the sort of the benefits of being diverse, whether you're a woman, a female, binary, of course, non-binary, um, race, ethnicity, et cetera. It's about embracing that individual and the benefits of that individual's diverse sort of makeup and experiences as well. And companies do not because they have one mole that they think about as a leader. And this is why I go back to my comment earlier about why representation matters. And it, it's not just in the legal profession. It's in a lot of different professions, medicine being another one. What does a doctor look like? Well, people have an image of what a doctor looks like. Well, people have an image of what a litigator should look like, what a uh, a general counsel should look like. And it's very hard to shake that. And that's the, the bias. That's the systemic part that becomes very challenging for people to break through to be able to advance. Having said that, I think that there are many advocates and and 
people who have really thought this through and why we're breaking through some of those barriers and we're seeing the numbers change, both on the company and the individual side. You can't achieve the successes that we're seeing now without corporations and, and forward-thinking leaders to say to their HR teams, who say to their their you know fellow colleagues that we need to think broadly and what does that mean? And that doesn't mean doing the same thing over and over again and hoping for a different result. And I think some of this discussion around ESG and sustainability has also helped people to really think about a sustainable human strategy, a human resource strategy that makes people think about, okay, what are the systems that prevent, you know, a deputy GC who is diverse, or who, you know, who is a woman, who is something else that is not the traditional that you see generally in those seats. And how do we evaluate our, our system to ensure that we are inclusive of others and, there, and, and value those experiences in the same way that we have valued others who were their predecessors who are white, male, cisgender, etc.? And I think those are the things that generally have prevented Asian Americans from advancing. I mean, we still have a long ways to go. But again, I, I, I try to focus on the celebration of the progress that we made um, in the last 20 years. I mean, 35 is huge from one. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You should so. celebrate that. Um, so it, given those challenges, let me go to Curtis first. Um, how do you personally navigate these challenges that Jean just laid out? How have you done it as role models for people who are following behind you? I think it would be interesting for the audience to hear that. So I think that one of the things, you know, as Jean said, you can never discount the possibility, you know, that there is unconscious bias or there's a stereotype or a characterization of what Asian Americans are. And that's, you know, that that's both positive, negative. I think one of the things that I've, I've personally done is to at least be conscious of that and to try to at least in the way I conduct myself work against it. So for example, I agree completely with Gene. One of the reasons that Asian Americans have not yet ascended to the top rank of the profession is not because of lack of soft skills. And, but there may be a perception by others of a characterization or a stereotype of what an Asian American lawyer is. And I think you just have to be conscious of that and try to work against it. So, for example, not to say that in meetings I am loud or disruptive or unruly, but I am conscious of the stereotype that some stereotype by some that Asians are quiet, undisruptive team players. So you have to, in terms of the way you conduct yourselves, you have to, um, uh, you have to try to counteract that. In terms of working with others, I, you know, I think one of the things, you know, one of the, uh, hopefully the optimistic, optimistic reasons why we have not yet ascended to the top ranks of the profession is because it just takes networks to get there, right? It needs family connections, business connections to get there. So for example, when I went to law school, <clears throat> my parents were not lawyers. None of their parents were lawyers. So I didn't have the kind of guidance that, for example, my daughter will have in terms of what law school is like, how to be successful. This is what a law firm is. If you want to become a law firm partner, this is the route you should take. That's advice that I think a lot of Asian Americans, because we're relatively new to the profession, um, didn't have. And so one of the things I try to, especially with younger Asian Americans, is to be very conscious of the fact that not all of us come from a deep network of business, community, or family systems that can kind of guide us 
through success in the law firm, legal profession. And so when I talk to younger Asian American lawyers, I try to impart what I, what I've learned and try to substitute or at least supplement, uh, you know, the lack of the networks. The optimistic thing is, is that hopefully as we grow more numerous in the profession and we're long, we can actually develop those networks for ourselves. And, you know, we'll stand on par with other groups in terms of at least our opportunity for success. Great. Thank you, Curtis. Gene, did you want to add anything on that before the next um, question, how you personally navigate those things or or pretty much the same way Curtis does? I mean, I think uh, it is pretty much the same, but the only nuance is that I have the additional sort of layer of being a woman. And we have additional biases that, that we have to navigate. I mean, the list of those are, are pretty long, but, you know, some of it is showing up as who you are and trying to break some of those stereotypes. And then you take hits along the way. Uh, I am a first generation Korean American and my parents are not highly educated. Um, my father was college educated, but but certainly not here in the United States. My, my mother um, did not even graduate, you know, middle school. She was born during, you know, World War Two uh, and, and the Korean War, et cetera. So most of our childhood was spent in war and in a, a country that has yet to, you know, go through the industrialization it, it has today. And so given that context, I and I'm the firstborn. Um, so I have a very different role in speaking off of my family in this country and, and being very protective of them. So I do not in any way fit the stereotype of a very quiet uh, not so opinionated Asian American and Asian American, you know, women, um, and so that created additional challenges for me because because of the unconscious bias. People expected you to be quiet. People expected you to get along. And the moment you challenge or ask the question that anyone could have, but given kind of how I look and where I come from, it was doubly if not more difficult because people don't expect you to speak up and have an opinion. Um, so navigating those challenges were definitely difficult. Um, and, and one of the things that I would encourage anyone who's, whether you're Asian American or not, as women, we need to speak up for ourselves. Um, if we don't, and, and we need to find men and, and other, you know, uh, friends and advocates and allies to help in that regard. And there are many. And, and that's been my um, way of navigating. I've always had a white male colleague who was my advocate and who was my sponsor. Um, and that is one of the ways in which I navigated um, most of my career, whether it was, you know, in-house at J.P. Morgan Chase or even before that. And certainly, on, you know, on this board, I have many um, men and women who are uh, champions and just so appreciative of that. But that is one way in which I navigated some of the challenges is that I've always had a, a very strong male advocate and men only because they were usually in the position of authority and power. And when they spoke, it mattered and it validates what I was saying. And they were very good about that. And some with, you know, without me even knowing. And I think those we call today sponsors. Um, and that was the way in which I navigated, you know, even then and, and certainly today as well. Thank you. For those law students who may be wondering about the path to either corporate law leadership, by which I mean corporate law firms or corporation leadership, tell us a little bit about your career trajectory, your own individual career trajectory, how you got to where you are today. 
starting with Curtis and then we'll go to Gene. Well, so I started, I, I have a fairly conventional law school career. So I, after law school, I clerked for a year. The one thing I know I did want to do was I, I knew I wanted to be a litigator, probably because that's the only vision of a lawyer I actually do from TV. That made two of uh, us. But I, I wanted to be a litigator. And so I was, um, so when I went to a big law firm, uh, I enjoyed it. I had the advantage of having uh, great mentors. I got a lot of trial experience, which is important for a litigator. And, you know, in my mid-30s, uh, I got an opportunity to go work in-house for a client. And I was at the time in my life where I could still take some chances. And uh, if I hated it or I got fired, I was pretty sure my partners would have me back. So I came into in-house life and I just happened to like it a lot more. Uh, I like the identification, having one lawyer, I'm sorry, one client uh, that you could identify with. As you get experience and become more trusted, maybe just because we're lawyers, they actually trust you to think about all the problems, not just legal legal problems. So I really liked it, and and that's how. And I've ultimately decided to stay. I've I've had a very satisfying career. I'm still very close with uh, some of the people who were in my partnership class, and they decided to take a different path. But um, I really enjoyed what I've done. Thank you, Curtis. Uh, Jane. Mine wasn't very traditional, and as you uh, noted earlier in my bio, I started as a social worker. I wanted to be a public interest lawyer because one of the reasons why I decided to go from being a legal aid social worker to law school is that I realized that society and and the systems that my clients were facing were greater than than one person can to you know address. And one of the things I thought about is that social workers worked with. Um, families and systems. And in my world, social workers were often brought in to kind of triage, if you will, the issues that in my world, again, were children, that children were facing. And one of the things I really thought about was how can we change the systems so that the, the, the children who are coming in through legal aid and to the foster care system are not coming through. They're not getting abused. They're not getting neglected. So I was, um, like most people in their 20s, um, very idealistic about wanting to change the world and having a greater impact. So I went to law school hoping to change the world. Um, soon I learned that's not possible because <laughs> then 9-11 happened and and there were a lot of student loans. Uh, so I, um, I decided to clerk for a federal magistrate judge in the District of New Jersey. And then still, you know, even in 2003, when I had finished my clerkship, the impact of 9-11 continued pretty significantly. And um, I really could not find a public interest job. So fast forward, um, I decided to work for the World the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey and the rebuilding of the World Trade Center. Um, and then from there, I, I decided to go to a plaintiff's firm, which I didn't know anything about. And, and, and again, I attempted to go back to the public interest side. But if you remember around 2007, 2008 was the great recession. <laughs> so my legal career was was taking a lot of dips and, and turns, if you will. And that's when I decided, okay, I don't want to do litigation anymore. I want to do something else. What where can I make a difference? What can I do? And as my then general counsel of JP Morgan, Stephen Cutler said, how did you get in here? <laughs> And I landed at, at, at J.P. Morgan. Well, because there was a lawsuit uh, from the firm, very firm that I came from. Uh, so we, we, we joked about that. My first meeting, uh, Stephen Cutler, back in 2012. 
Um, and, and, and I really did enjoy um, the practice of law and was a terrific experience for somebody with my background. And again, you know, I had a great um, manager then, but, and I don't mean to sound like a Debbie Downer, but I've had a lot of challenges at my then manager, who was such an advocate and a supporter died all of a sudden. And then my career changed once again. I, I mean, it was so traumatic. It was in the news back then. And then, and then it gave me pause about where do I, where do I want to go? Um, because then it, it changed quite a bit as well. And that's when I ultimately I decided I, I want to go somewhere where I can put my roots down and where I, I know that I am going to have an impact and make a difference. And that's, that's how I ended up at uh, MCC. I was a volunteer board member for about three years and the opportunity came up. Initially, I thought the task could be daunting, but I have enjoyed every moment of it. And in fact, um, I enjoy it more today than I did my first few years uh, in this role. So that's been my career trajectory. And, um, you know, we'll see where it takes me. But seven years in, and I am absolutely loving every day of it. Although this week, as I said to Ben earlier, uh, yesterday and today, not so good. <laughs> But generally, very, very good. Uh, thank you, guys. I'm in with uh, John now, uh, and we're gonna we're gonna go to uh, the the last question. And I think, you know, trying to leave the the audience with some you know some takeaways, right? Like what, in addition to building up their careers, as you guys just kind of walked us through, there's this idea of uh, of coalition building, right? And and Jean, you talked about um, you know in in prep both within the community, and obviously we're celebrating AAPI this month, but also building uh, coalitions with other communities. Maybe we'll flip to, to Curtis to start this one. But, you know, Curtis, obviously, you know, you've ascended to what many would call the, you know, the the top ranks of, uh, of legal leadership, right? Being a general counsel at a big company and that sort of thing. Maybe you could talk about the, you know, coalition building both your own networks you talked about and maybe some of the other networks that, that could still be missing. And then we can close out with, uh, with, with Gene. So one thing about coalition building, Brian, is I, um, I think we always need to remember that uh, the moniker of Asian American encompasses a lot of diversity. So for example, I saw an article the other day, if you look at the relative educational wealth achievements of say, for example, Indian Americans and Hmongs, it's dramatically different. So I think one of the things I'm always very conscious of is that the Asian American experience in the law is itself very diverse um, and it covers a lot of reality. So I think we always have to make sure that we pay attention to all aspects um, you know, of our community. In terms of coalition building, what I, what I try to do is make sure that you know, I connect regularly with other Asian American lawyers throughout all parts of the legal profession. So as you said, I'm, I sit on the board of a, a legal services group here um, in DC that provides legal services to uh, low-income Asian American and Pacific Islanders. And it gives me the opportunity to have a lot of interaction with other lawyers because there are in fact moments um, when it's important for us um, to talk, to be united, uh, and to the extent that we need to create responses or even fight back, it's important to stay connected. And I'm particularly reminded of, you know, what happened after COVID, all of the names about the China flu um, and um, 
the mischaracterization of what happened there actually had a real-world impact in the United States, which is the wave of Asian, anti-Asian violence that we saw in 20 and 21. So that was an opportunity for people in the, in the profession to call that out and to create responses, uh, because there are times when um, it's important for people who have the same background and the experiences you know, we still are relatively new to this country and we still are subject to some vicissitudes of what happens in, in the greater uh, politics and culture. And it's important to be talking, be, be united in those moments when, uh, you know, really significant things affect our community. Really well said. Thank you, Curtis. Jean? Sure. Yeah. And, and I, you know, the pandemic um, was horrible for everybody around the globe in many ways and, and everybody had experiences where they were just dealing with a lot of difficult situations besides the health. I mean, just living and, and safety and all of these things, but focusing on the, the experiences of Asian American community. One of the things that I was heartened to see was how many Asian Americans actually came together and put aside some of their differences to unite on this issue and to start to speak up. You know, I consider myself a lifelong New Yorker in many ways. I went to school in New York and lived in New York. And even when I left New York to work and live in DC, I still went back to New York pretty regularly. It's where I called home for a long time. But I will tell you that once the pandemic happened, I no longer felt safe. I still do not feel safe uh, being in New York City. Uh, in the way that I used to, where I knew exactly what what everything was, did not feel unsafe as a woman walking alone, dark, late at night, never, because I, I knew how to navigate the streets and, and, and felt comfortable. But it's a different world today. And it's what Curtis said, uh, you know, all the things actually Curtis said about how the pandemic and the coronavirus was really blamed on China and that somehow lumped everybody else into that, um, you know, and, and Asian Americans really suffered um, because of that and were victimized and terrorized in some ways. Uh, but it was great to see the flip side of that, which is that the community actually got together and we started speaking out. So I love seeing the unity. I, I just wish it didn't have to take a pandemic and so many people getting hurt for us to get there. But nonetheless, the result of the community coming together and speaking out on these issues that we generally have not spoken out about and our own personal stories and our own personal challenges was, was very, it was a positive step forward in defining what the Asian American identity is in the United States. Um, and in terms of going forward, one of the things that I noticed, and hopefully it will be the beginning of something, is that there was an attempt for Asian Americans to build coalitions with other groups. Um, and, and Brian, you and I talked about this a little bit. It's unfortunate it had to take something like this, but I hope that we will do that when it does not impact our community, because that's something that a lot of people have criticize the Asian American community for, and I don't disagree, that we only speak up and show up when it impacts us. While that was true in the past for a lot of historical reasons, which I'm not going to go into why that was, um, because that's another whole conversation, one of the things that's an important lesson for us to take from this experience with the pandemic and the racism and anti-Asian hate um, that we've experienced is that we need to build bridges with other communities of color 
and those communities who have had similar experiences here in the United States and what that means to build bridges. What does it mean to build a bridge? Is it showing up at, at, a, at a rally to support Black Lives Matter or is it a policy issue? I think it's all of it. It's about speaking up in the corporate context for other colleagues who may be impacted, even if it doesn't impact you. And it's about finding that sort of safety in numbers to get the results for somebody else, even if it's not to benefit you or your in-group. I think that's the important part that we have to constantly remind ourselves to build those bridges. And somebody somewhere has to start first, and I'm encouraging Asian American lawyers to do that. Great. Uh, good note to uh, to end on. Not not all the challenges, but they're, you know, they're there, right? We have to look at them uh, very clear eyed, face them down in the ways that you you guys have both stated there. Um, and, you know, I guess that hope, that prospect, if you will, um, what you guys were both saying is that progress is possible. I mean, we're already making it, but maybe we have a little bit more to do. So, We'll stop there for the formal podcast. We'll move into our a uh, little bit of the whimsical segment. I hope you guys are ready. John usually kicks us off, much to his chagrin. I'll say he, he fights. Uh, he fights this one, but nicely goes along and let let lets me have it. Uh, so we're we're gonna uh, talk about uh, pet peeves or something you can't let go or whatever's on your mind. Um, you guys can uh, deal dealer's choice. Um, we'll kick it over to John. Like I said, we'll go to both of you and and then um, well, thank you for your time, but. Uh, the, the insight has been greatly appreciated. Just to uh, echo Brian's point about my feeling about the pet peeves, uh, this is our 25th episode, I believe, and we have it every one, and I never remember that I have to come up with a pet peeve, which tells you that subconsciously somewhere my mind is blocking it out. But I came up with one, and it doesn't involve technology this time, which is uh, about 90% of my pet peeves. Uh, this one's about NBA referees, which I, for years, have not understood the what goes on with the refereeing in the NBA. It seems to be the only league where the rules are entirely different for some people and then others. Um, you know, what's a foul isn't a foul, depending on who you are. Traveling doesn't matter unless it's a rookie. There's all sorts of things that I don't understand about NBA refereeing, and you know, referees across the across all sports come under a lot of criticism, and they have really tough jobs. And the NBA refs have really tough jobs because of the athleticism. And well, you know, it isn't easy to determine what is a foul and what is, isn't a foul. But to the naked eye, um, or at least my naked eye, I have to say, the disparity in refereeing from one game to the next, and one quarter to the next, and um, what is and isn't a foul. As a lawyer, it bothers me because of what appears to be the ambiguity of it all. So, so that's my pet peeve. Given that we're in the NBA um, uh, semifinals right now, I'm watching and and yet again being amazed. That was a good one and very topical. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I like feel like saying amen, that, but that may be because my know, team right? lo- well, my team lost, so I'm like very much in agreement with John. Oh. Any, anyway. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Curtis, do you have a pet peeve for us? Well, just to follow on, Jonathan, but I'll give it my real pet peeve. So Please. we're in the middle of if we're in the middle of baseball season. If somebody can tell me what the check swing rule is, I have no idea. I could not tell you what is a check swing and what's not a check swing. Um, so my pet peeve is 
you know, in my family, we have division of labor at mealtime, so I do not cook, so I'm responsible for uh, cleanup. And uh, my pet peeve is when you cannot find the end of the saran wrap. <laughs> and then you use a knife, and then you cut the entire roll. I mean, we can send people to the astronaut. We should be able to find a system that when you open up the box, These are good. you can easily find the end of the wrap. Uh, oh my wait. god, that's funny. I can relate, Curtis. I, I, I don't have the manual dexterity to, to be able to unwrap those things. It's amazing. Uh, the, yes, <laughs> ditto. <laughs> Gene. Uh, I'm going to stick with the sports one. Okay, my pet peeve is, okay, I'm sick of all these quarterbacks who retire and then come back and then retire again and then come back. Can we just retire and be gone? <laughs> like, stop trying to get us all, like, sad and depressed and then excited for the new generation and then you come back again. Uh, yeah, I, I, if you're going to retire, i.e. Tom Brady, please retire and don't come back. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think I agree. We got Matt Ryan lurking out there. It's broadcasting, but I'm not officially retired. I was like, you look like you were retired when you were playing last year. Uh, so, so I love this because we say occasionally talk about sports and all four pet peeves will be about sports. Um, Except the saran wrap. Oh, the saran wrap. Uh, I, I was, I was still thinking about the check swing, but John has corrected me and he's 100% right. Uh, saran wrap. Mine's going to be about the Warriors. Uh, and yes, I know people will say cry me a river. Got to, uh, got to go to five straight finals. Uh, but as, uh, as, as John pointed out, we can't blame it just on the referees. But when you come to an end of an era, <laughs> as good a sport as I tried to be, uh, it's uh, it's really first. It's sad. Now I'm just irritated. So it's a pet peeve, and to add injury to insult, of course I was overconfident, and I bet a friend. So now on all social media platforms except for LinkedIn, I won't do that. My profile picture for the next month has to be me in a Laker jersey. So um, my, my pet peeve is that my air is over and my team lost, and I'm going to look like an idiot. <laughs> Oh, I, I feel for you. I just want to ask one follow-up question to Brian. Since when have you wanted to be a good sport? Well, that's it. <laughs> I, I did want to say that for the audience, but okay, John has exposed me. I I like winning at all costs. <laughs> And, and I do not. Uh, yes, I hate winning more, even more than I like winning. So, yeah, fair enough. Uh, I think it's a fair point. <laughs> uh, anyway, well, why don't we break? John's, John will do a close after after we're all finished. He'll just ask Ben if if he minds Zach and uh, Eliana if they can come back in and just make sure they have everything they need from uh, from your guys' side, and then you know we can thank you. Uh, you spent a, a real good amount of time with us today, and we we appreciate you both. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you again to our guests, Gene Lee and Curtis Liu, for joining us today. It was such a great conversation. Brian and I thank all of you for listening to The Law in Black and White. We hope you enjoyed our discussion. You can find us at legal-innovators.com for even more insights. You can also subscribe to our podcast and follow Legal Innovators on social media to see what we're up to. We look forward to talking to you next time, probably after the NBA Finals, and we'll have more to complain about then. Be safe.